scripture reading this morning will be from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is God's word. You may be seated. Inside of the, uh, the bulletin, you'll find an outline that you can use, uh, maybe take some notes as, as we go through this text. At the bottom of it, uh, for the small groups that are meeting today, uh, I know a lot are meeting, but they're uh, doing some other kinds of activities. Today is, what's happening today? Um, Super Bowl. But I don't care. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, but uh, for the groups that are meeting, uh, there's, uh, there's some questions down at the bottom that you can use to, uh, for your discussion uh, as it pertains to, uh, to the message today. Let's begin with a word of prayer. God, we've just been singing about how great you are and you are. We say this with all of our heart. We say this in our strongest voice, that you are great and we want our lives to illustrate that. <coughs> you have done great things. But it is the greatness of your inner core of holiness and love that is so striking to us. It is your nature with that kind of righteousness and holiness and love to be inviting everyone, all your creatures, to come and to experience how great you are. And as we, we study this story that Jesus told, the shocking parable, it's our prayer, Father, that with our eyes we see it, with our ears we hear it, and in our hearts we believe it. And we ask, Father, that this word be powerful in our lives this day. And this we pray in the name of Jesus. And everyone says, I love our mission statement. I really don't get very tired of thinking about it. It's, it's so biblical, it's so challenging, and it's so easy to remember. It can be expressed. We don't need words. We've got dots. And the dots tell us what? Dots up on the screen tell us what? There they are. First one is love God, then love people, then from time to time, people want to know, how does it work, this loving God and loving people and changing the world? When humans love God the way that Jesus loved God, with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, it leads to loving people in the very same way that God loves them. And when the God-shaped hole in anyone's heart experiences that, it can, and it usually does, change them. And that's how the world is changed, one person at a time, one heart at a time. 
as I am changed and you are changed and we bring the gospel to other people and they are changed and the world changed. Rick uh, Warren said it 20 years ago, if we will build people, God will build his church. But beneath every mission statement, whether it's a, a personal mission statement, I know many of you have one. Whether it's a personal mission statement or a business or a nonprofit or a church, there is always the possibility that lurking just below the surface is a shadow mission. A mission is a statement that calls you to embrace something that's bigger than you. But if the mission statement is not embraced and adopted, then it comes about you. That becomes the shadow mission. A fellow by the name of Robert Schnassi uh, describes a shadow mission as an unspoken subscript to the mission statement. He would describe it this way. It's, it's doing the mission statement unless I'm uncomfortable. And then it's not about mission. It's about maintenance. It's about the maintenance of comfort. Or it's doing the mission statement as long as it keeps everyone happy. And that is about the maintenance of happy. Or it's doing the mission as long as I don't have to personally change. Which means it's really not about the mission. It's about maintaining my present life. But the question I would ask is this. How in the world could you ever love God, especially in the ways that Jesus instructs us to do it? All our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. How can you love God without changing? An illustration from my own marriage. Uh, every, every significant change that I, I, we could probably say it's an improvement. But every significant change that I have made as, as a husband is the result of my love for Ellen and wanting to live a life that is worthy of her love for me. Loving a God who loves you, church, will change you. So here's the question. If I don't change, then why would I think that the world would change? It boils down to this. A changed world begins with a changed me. We often say when we sit down to do counseling, whether with an individual or a new couple in premarital counseling or with a family, a marriage, whatever, we say that dysfunctionality, when things are not lining up right and there's a lot of gears that are stripping and, and chewing themselves up, we say that dysfunctionality is the inability to be honest. Now, quite frankly, significant change is most of the time triggered by the discovery, the revelation of some truth about you or about something that you're involved in. For example, poor health leads to a change of lifestyle that would involve exercise and eating. Being put on academic probation leads to better study habits. Lots of speeding tickets leads to a responsible use of the cruise control. There is, though, one area in which we as human beings universally and historically seem to be blind to the truth, and it is in the area of our spiritual character. We have what we might call the Uncle Rico syndrome. 
Uncle Rico is a character from the movie Napoleon Dynamite, one of the funniest dumb movies I've ever seen in my life. Uncle Rico fancies himself a great quarterback with an amazing arm that can throw a football, according to him, over a mountain. And if the coach had put him in the last game of the season, the high school would have won the state championship. You don't go too far into the movie before you see that Uncle Rico is a bit delusional about himself. His impressions of himself are contradicted by reality. And so later in life, uh, for Uncle Rico, the dream is not dead, and he puts together a video of him throwing a football that is one of the funniest things that you will ever see. And it's sadly comical because Uncle Rico doesn't see that he is suboptimal. He's suboptimal when it comes to playing quarterback. But he's not the only one. Research for years has told us that with few scant exceptions, that Americans believe that they're going to go to heaven. That by my good works, my good looks, the fact that I may be cute and lovable, for some reason out there, I'm going to heaven. When it comes to our character, our spiritual character as Americans, we suffer from this Uncle Rico syndrome. We do not see our flaws. We do not see our inabilities. We do not see our weaknesses in the area of spiritual character. But, my friends, it is not an American story only. It is the story of human beings since Genesis 3, which brings us to the text that Jacob has read for us. Luke is relaying to us a parable that Jesus tells. And it's a shocking parable. But it has a context. It has a human context. And it is described with these words from Luke chapter 18. To some who were confident of their own righteousness, and they looked down on everyone else. I want to read that again. Confident. Highlight that in your Bible. Confident in their own righteousness and looking down on everyone else. These are people that Jesus is speaking to that have surrounded Jesus at this teaching moment. And they think they're doing great. They, they think they're doing wonderfully. Why? It's because they look better. They act better than other people, which leads them looking down on other people, people that they perceive not as, as spiritually mature as they are because of the lack of religious activities. They are deceived into thinking their actions have made them better. And Jesus knows that they're in danger. These people are in danger. And because he loves them, he wants to bring them out of their deception. And so he tells them this shocking parable. Fred Craddock, one of my favorite uh, uh, New Testament scholars, at Emory University in Atlanta. He wrote a commentary on Luke and he says, you know, there are these parables that Jesus uses where he's teaching or, or he's reaffirming or confirming a truth. And then there are these parables that he tells that is like the breaking up of soil so that there can be a new learning, a new teaching. This is a break the soil kind of a parable. And it begins in the very next verse. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. They have a Pharisee and a tax collector. Right away, the crowd thinks that Team Pharisee 
are the New England Patriots. You're not going to get away without a football reference today. (laughs) The crowd thinks Team Pharisee are the New England Patriots winners. Winners. Pharisee's mentioned first. He's the one that's mentioned first. He's devout. He does all of the right things. Then there's Team Tax Collector. Oakland Raiders. Corrupt. If you like the Raiders, I'm just teasing, right? But they're corrupt. Traitors. Loose with the rules. (laughs) I'm talking about tax collectors. In cahoots with Rome. But then the story gets weird. As both of these men, tax collector and Pharisee, Pharisee and tax collector, according to Jesus, they go up to the temple to pray. First, the Pharisee. (coughs) The text says that he begins to separate himself. His identity. From the identity of those around him. He separates himself from everyone else. He prays, God, I thank you that I am not like other people who are robbers and evildoers and adulterers. Question, who do you think he's talking about? That tax collector. Robbers. They tax way more than they should. Evildoers, they're in cahoots with Rome. Adulterers, because they have allowed their money to cloud their judgment. They have put money in the place of God. That's why they're adulterers. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like that tax collector. But I do fast twice a week and I tithe everything. This is how he judges his spiritual character. And then there's the tax collector, uh, old scholar of the Old Testament, Eidersheim, in his book on the temple, writes that looking down and beating the chest was how women, not men, but how women expressed the deepest kind of sorrow, unless the man was going through one of the most crushing, horrific, emotional moments of grief and sorrow in his life. And his tax collector at a distance in sorrow, he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Tax collector has recognized that he is suboptimal before God and is in need of God's mercy. In fact, he says literally, God, make an atonement. Make an atonement for me, a sinner. I've heard this, this passage preached a, a hundred times. And the one thing that we never mention about this passage is that these are not prayers that are said off the cuff while, while getting ready to go to work or right before they go to sleep. These men have gone to the temple to pray. I think probably the ninth hour or 3 p.m. at the time of sacrifice. The sound of a lamb slaughtered. The smell of incense. Rising smoke from the altar. The clash of cymbals. The sight 
and the sound and the smell. Inescapable. And a priest is there doing it on behalf of the people. The very thing that they cannot do for themselves in order to affirm their relationship with God who in love gives them all a way to come and meet with Him. They pray what they pray while all of this is going on at the temple. And this is where Jesus gives them the unexpected twist. He says in verse 14, I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God for all those who exalt themselves will be what? And all who humble themselves will be by God exalted. These are confident religious people. I wonder what they said when they heard that. I don't think it was Hey, Jesus, can I get a podcast? I mean, when is that going to be made available? My guess is, is that they said nothing because a dose of humility has a way of closing the human mouth. We started talking about our mission statement. The, mission, the, the, the reason our mission statement is possible is because God in love makes room for tax collectors and thieves on a cross, and women caught in adultery, and prostitutes, and murderers, and the like, who recognize that they are suboptimal, and they come to Him in trust in order to be forgiven and to be given a new life. The church, the MacArthur Park Church of Christ, 60 plus years, The church is the only place on earth where it does not matter your race or your nationality. It does not matter your politics, your gender, or your past. You belong because of God's love. No matter who, no matter what, no matter where. We are not here because we are optimal spiritually speaking but because the love of God reigns supreme in the hearts of suboptimal human beings. And so three practical things for us to do. Number one, audit daily your self-righteousness quotient. Every day do an audit. And, And you do this two ways. First, you begin to ask questions. You ask yourself questions like this. Do I look down on people who act less religious than me? Are there people in our community who won't fit with our church? Are there people in our church that I don't like to sit on the pew with? And then number two, you think about that tax collector's prayer. Have mercy on me, God, a sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And then number two, rather than looking down on people, we learn empathy. Empathy closes the the distance between people. Empathy brings people like the Pharisee and that far-off tax collector through the gospel together. Many of you know 
the name Brene Brown. She has a little video out there where she uh, talks about four things that you can do to develop empathy. The first is consider the perspective of the other person. Uh, number two, it's stay out of judgment. I'm so glad I'm not like that tax collector. Number three, recognize emotion in the other people. A tax collector not looking up to heaven and beating his chest. And communicate that. Empathy is the way of Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 4, that writer says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to what? Unable to do what, church? Say it with gusto. Empathize with our what? Our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. The Jesus way is to learn empathy and then finally celebrate genuine transformation. You know, I'm often asked by people if the, the ones that have died and gone to heaven before us, if they know what's going on in our lives now. I think about this like everyone else. My answer today, in part, is yes, they do. Think of the parable of the lost coin. Luke chapter 15, verse 10, in the same way, coin has been found, everybody's rejoicing, in the same way, Jesus says, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It doesn't say rejoicing among the angels. He says, in the presence of the angels of God. Who is it in the presence of angels who rejoices when a sinner repents? I suppose it's those who know better than anyone else the joy of repentance. In a conversation recently, we were talking about spiritual disciplines, transformations. I believe that change is one of the most courageous things a human can do, and it should be celebrated. It should be celebrated. Uh, in a couple of minutes, we're going to sing an invitation song. And the invitation is to change. The invitation is to change. If you are still in this relationship with, with, with God in which there is still a struggle to become what a disciple of Jesus is to look like, we want you to come. We, we want Shepherds will be down at the front. We want to pray. But if you've never known that salvation, the gospel offers to you an opportunity not just to have your conscience cleared and your sins forgiven. Forgiveness is a gift. But the gospel promises the gift of a new life. Recently, Pepperdine University recognized and honored the work of Gregory Boyle, a priest who began work with gang members in Los Angeles 30 years ago. It is now known as Homeboy Industries. It's a coffee shop. It's a bakery. Uh, gang members, those who have been incarcerated, male and female, there is job training, training on how to be a parent, how to live together as family, obviously the gospel. 
And Gregory Boyle tells of an invitation from Gonzaga University to speak to a thousand people about his work in Los Angeles. And they say, why don't you bring, and they said this, uh, why don't you bring a couple of homies with you? And so he does. And one of the former homeboys is an individual by the name, a young man by the name of Mario, who just happens to be the most tattooed individual in the history of the work of Homeboy. Shaved his head, covered it with tattoos, his eyelids, if he, this picture, if he were to close them, they would say, the end. As they're going to the university to speak, Greg receives all of these, these people shrinking back from Mario and the other guy that's with them. And it strikes him as ironic. Because if you were to go to Homeboy Industries and to ask who is the gentlest, kindest soul there, they would not say Gregory Boyle. They would say Mario. And they give their story. You can hear a pin drop in the place. And they bring the, the guys back up front at the end for questions and answers. And there's a woman in the audience about this size. She raises her hand. She has a question. She says, you say that you are a father with a son and a daughter about to enter their teenage years. What wisdom would you impart to them? And Mario is terrified of the crowd, but more terrified of the question. And he's holding that mic stand. And he steps back and he steps forward and he grabs the mic and he wants to say what he's going to say. He says, I do not want them to end up like me. And he begins to tear up. And there's silence in the auditorium until the woman who asked the question stands and now it's her time to cry. And she says, why would you not want your kids to be like you? You are loving and kind. You are gentle and wise. I hope your kids turn out to be just like that. And with that, thousand people stand and they start clapping and they won't stop clapping. And Mario puts his hands in his face and begins to weep. We are the ones who stands with those whose burdens are too much for them to bear and they cannot look up but beat their chest in sorrow. We stand with the disposable until the day comes when people are no longer discarded and looked down upon. We are the ones who strive to be salt for those lives who are touched day by day with the decay and the corruption of this world with its evil desires. We are the ones, church, who choose to be light for those who know only darkness. We are the ones who want to ventilate the world with the hope of the gospel for those who realize in their heart of hearts that they are suboptimal. And we want our very lives, our very lives, to show that God heals our brokenness through Jesus, who is the hope of heaven. And more than anything else, we want our lives to be the yes, the yes to the question, is it true? And we want our changed lives to say, it is true, it is true, it is true. Thank God it's true. Let's stand and sing.
In a world of sorrow, bring your life again. Guide.